The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the front lines, analyse the news that Ukraine is establishing bridgeheads on the left bank of the Dnipro, and we speak to foreign correspondent Matthew Day on the latest developments in Poland as politicians negotiate to form a new government. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 10th of November, one year and 259 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and foreign correspondent, Matthew Day, speaking from Poland. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from Ukraine. Yes, hi folks. So we're going back to the left bank of the Dnipro River or the East Bank. So Ukraine is securing new positions on the left bank of the Dnipro River. And that is from the Institute of the Study of War, our friends, the US-based think tank. And that is, as other reporting comes in, that Ukraine's forces are expanding a bridgehead, maybe potentially more bridgeheads on the Russian-occupied side of the river. So um, according to the uh, ISW, Kyiv's forces have established control over areas in Karinki, which is about a mile south of the river, and they continue to push south into Russian-occupied territory from there. I know Dom touched on this yesterday a little bit, but drone footage purportedly from the area showed a single Ukrainian BTR-4, that's an amphibious eight-wheeled infantry fighting vehicle and that footage showed it being ferried across the river this week so that would seemingly be the first time Kiev has been able to land armor on the russian occupied side of the dnipro river since the operation this cross river operation started around around may time so it has significantly gathered pace since mid-october when Ukrainian forces first launched missions to hold ground on that side of the river. And it's quite interesting because cross river and these amphibious assaults are, well, yeah, very dangerous. They're susceptible to sort of aerial attack. There are no bridges really operating over the area because they've been destroyed. So you're basically relying on getting on ferries and various different river crossing platforms to do it so you're susceptible from sort of aerial attacks whether it be from helicopters artillery drone attacks etc but ukraine has seemingly using sort of a mixture of electronic warfare and long-range drone strikes been able to control the skies to the extent that they've been flying mi-24 attack helicopters over the river or from launching attacks from before the river to basically suppress russian forces on the other side and without wanting to go into too much sort of detail, why is this important? And we be, we speak a lot about the stalled counteroffensive uh, in Zaporizhia, around Bakhmut, etc. But this is sort of a new axis that's opened up over the last 
month or so. And now Russian military bloggers have raised concerns over Moscow's ability to stifle the Ukrainian advances on the left bank of the Dnipro, especially as armoured vehicles are introduced to the fight for the first time, even if it is just one for now. This is interesting. This is from ISW's report uh, late last night, this morning, if you're in Europe. The Russian command will likely face significant challenges in redeploying units from other sectors of the front should relatively combat-ineffective Russian formations and currently uncommitted Russian forces in the Kherson direction prove insufficient to respond to the Ukrainian operations on the east bank of the Dnipro. And so basically the Washington-based think tank ISW said a Russian redeployment to bolster its defences in Kherson would degrade its forces' ability to defend against Ukraine's counteroffensive elsewhere, so in the Zaporizhia region, the Orokiv and Vilka-Nevasoka axes as we've been to know, all around Bakhmut. But then it also could potentially detract from the attempts to fight and take the fight to Ukraine in the east, in Abdivka, in Vuladar, etc., etc. So it's interesting to see... So I'm sure the Ukrainians would like to see this as a genuine effort to recapture land seized by the Russians, but also it is a great distraction and could possibly move away forces from other parts of the more intense fighting around the front lines. So Ukraine's advance is not expected to be a rapid one south of the Dnipro River. So the terrain around the bridgeheads, as we think there's around four bridgeheads, is wet, marshy, and it's heavily wooded. The rainy season is upon us, so like the thick muds, heavy rain is going to slow any mechanised assault, even if it's just with this one armoured vehicle to such. But what is interesting is most of the Ukrainians at the moment are on foot. They're carrying out, they're setting up little ambushes, they're on foot patrols. That won't, well, it will be slowed by mud, but it won't completely unhinder, it won't completely hinder them. So they will be able to move over the winter months. So it'll be interesting to see how Ukraine takes this forward, obviously with the usual caveats, if they really want to bolster and pour forces into this fight, it's going to be extremely risky because river crossings, as I mentioned above, are extremely risky and susceptible to aerial attack. But what is quite interesting is, is potentially what they are trying to do is move Ukrainian weapons closer to Russia's supply routes west out of Militiopol. And they are... You, Russia is, by accounts that you hear, already stretched, struggling to fuel, like get fuel and munitions to their forces on the, in this area. So if Ukraine can continue to further squeezing this logistic supply line, then they might just have some success in causing Russian forces there to collapse. But that could be a long way off. And let's move off over to Vladimir Putin is in Rostov-on-Don, and he has paid a surprise visit to Russia's military headquarters in, in the town, the city. It's where the southern grouping of Russian forces are headquartered. And it is only his second visit to the southern outpost in a month. So uh, why is it famous? Uh, so Yevgeny Prigozhin's uh, Wagner forces um, managed to seize hold of this city in June as part of their failed military coup. And Vladimir Putin then went to visit it in August. But it looks like he's gone there, accompanied by Sergei Shoigu, this time he's the Russian defence minister, and Valery Gerasimov, the commander of military operations in Ukraine. 
to witness and look at what is going on with Russia's offensive. So Avdivka is only about 100 miles away from Rostov-on-Don. So they will be getting sort of a front row seat at the rear of that assault to sort of the destruction of various armoured vehicles, maybe hundreds now and thousands of lives if you believe the Ukrainian the Ukrainian estimates of the losses that Russia is sustaining there. So the Kremlin also said that Putin had was shown new military equipment and briefed on the war. Um, so it came as Russian troops were intensifying their attacks on Avdivka, which is interesting. Okay, and then interestingly as well, Alexander Borodin, he's a press officer for Ukraine's third separate assault brigade, said Russian forces were launching major infantry attacks while trying to keep their equipment intact. So Borodin told the news outlet Espresso TV there was no dramatic statistics for destroying enemy equipment because they use it much less and mainly from a distance, but their movements are quite dense now. It is not just infantry advancing, but also parallel work of artillery, drones, aviation the same air bombing and more so we know when russia tried to attack avdivka they went with this massive sort of mechanized assault and ended up coming across the same problems as ukraine did running into thick minefields artillery barrages these first person view drones have been so effective so quashing mechanized advances so it now looks like Russia have taken the sort of more attritional approach. They're going to go use their some maybe meat waves that they like to use of of soldiers, little groups sent to their almost deaths under the cover of artillery and long range fires. That's a more sort of traditional approach used by Russia and more frequently by uh, Ukraine these days as well, um, as they seek to conserve what they have left in terms of armored vehicles and tanks, etc. Um, and then now over to Crimea, where Ukrainian forces have damaged two small Russian landing boats during an overnight attack using sea drones. And that is according to Ukraine's military intelligence agency. So while no one can independently verify the report and there was no immediate comment by Russia, apart from they said, I think they destroyed two drones in the area. This is what Ukraine's military intelligence had to say. As a result of a night operation on the territory of temporary occupied Crimea, small amphibious ships of the Russian Black Sea fleet were hit by soldiers. So there's still little to go on that, but it works in tandem with what Ukraine is trying to achieve by constantly putting pressure on Russia's Black Sea fleet in the hope of moving it further out and out of range of Ukraine and Crimea one day, hopefully. And... Yeah, as, as I mentioned, Russia's air defence is apparently down two Ukrainian drones over Crimea and one over the Tulip region of Moscow, which the uh, Russia's defence ministry was reported as saying. And I'll stop there for now. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for talking us through all of those updates. Just before we go to Francis, I would recommend for a very interesting and sobering read, our friend of the podcast, Francis Farrell from the Kiev Independent, has written a fantastic article on Russia's homegrown Lancet drone, which the the title is How Russia's Homegrown Lancet Drone Became So Feared in Ukraine. So if you want uh, a bit more uh, depth um, on some of the weapons that the Russian forces are are using and introducing and and their impact on the battlefield, I would recommend people go to the Kiev Independent and read that. you've been looking at the political and diplomatic updates. Um, Can you talk us through them? Certainly. Well, thanks, David. I'm going to start with Russia today 
the country, not the propaganda channel, and developments coming out of those summits we referenced earlier in the week. I'll begin with the announcement today, though, that Putin will host one of his annual phone-ins and press conferences before the end of the year. This is significant. Long-term listeners will recall that the Kremlin cancelled Putin's press conference in December last year, largely believed so he would avoid awkward questions about the war from international journalists. Now, the phone-in, obviously a separate entity, was due to take place in early June this year, but that was also indefinitely postponed. We now know that the two will take place before the close of December. One of two things is happening. Either Moscow thinks they can't put it off any longer, that the reputational damage of not doing these, which were, as I say, very frequent in the past, was too great, or that the situation in Ukraine is now favourable enough that they feel they have good answers to difficult questions. Obviously, we will watch and cover that with great interest when it does happen. But on to these summits. It was Kazakhstan yesterday, a country, of course, economically reliant on its relationship with Moscow, but which has had a somewhat fractious relationship since the invasion, something we covered in detail with James Kilner. Speaking to this, many are commenting on a rather embarrassing moment for the Russian delegation when the president began his speech yesterday speaking not in Russian, the language usually adopted at summits by former Soviet states, but instead choosing to speak in his native tongue. Watching the footage, you can see the shock on the faces of the Russian delegation, who then have to scramble to find an earpiece in order to hear the translation. Now, as Bakhti Nishanov of the Helsinki Commission writes on Twitter, or X as we call it these days, quote, leaders of the former Soviet states speak Russian with their Russian counterparts, both as a matter of of deference, practicality, but also as a remnant of the Soviet past and the behaviour expected by a colonial master of a presumed satellite state. It is in this context, and especially in light of the constant drumbeat of Russian politicians making territorial claims on Kazakhstan, Tokayev choosing to speak in Kazakh is a power move and sends a clear signal to the Kremlin. Now, Moscow's intentions for the summit more broadly became clearer yesterday, as it appears it may be intending to provide gas to Iran via Kazakhstan. According to the ISW, Putin emphasised during a meeting with the Kazakh president that Russia currently transports gas to Uzbekistan through Kazakhstan, something which only began in October, and wants to expand this. Notably, though, Uzbekistan still exports its own domestically produced natural gas, including to Russia as recently as 2021, despite suffering domestic shortages in recent years. So this continued export of gas while importing Russian gas suggests Uzbekistan may not actually be the final destination for all of its Russian gas imports. As the ISW says, Uzbekistan is capable of providing Iran with direct access to other Central Asian as well as Russian and Chinese markets. Interesting and something for us to discuss the next time James is with us. It would certainly make sense given the diplomatic context from Moscow's perspective at the moment. Now, on to Russia's other allies, a notable, if unsurprising, development today following the major political news of the week that Ukraine will now be a candidate for membership of the European Union. 
Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has said that he doesn't support moving forward on those negotiations. So for a little bit of context here, EU leaders, as we've said in earlier episodes, are set to decide in mid-December whether Ukraine should be formally invited to begin talks to join the 27-member union. And Kyiv will require unanimous approval for that formal invitation, which has been recommended now this week from the Commission. So technically speaking, Hungary could well block that, though Joe and I were talking about this before we went on air. And we agree that in all likelihood, given the length of time it will take for, you to, for Ukraine to even conceivably become a member of the EU, it seems more likely that Hungary will choose this moment to slow things down, kick up a bit of a fuss, but not to actually veto the formal discussions to begin. So not to bar Ukraine's progress. So they'll huff and puff, but won't actually blow the house down yet. It's worth repeating that Hungary's obstinacy cannot impede the EU's economic support for Ukraine. If it were to veto another thing, this upcoming $50 billion aid package due to be signed off in mid-December, then the EU is confident it will be able to work around that. After all, despite all the gloom at the moment, support remains very, very high in the EU. The Czechs have just signed an agreement with the Taiwanese government, interestingly, to work together to help reconstruction work in Ukraine, with a senior Czech envoy praising Taipei as a great ally despite the absence of formal diplomatic ties. And indeed, if you speak to people in Taiwan, they will tell you that the war in Ukraine is absolutely vital from their perspective for their long-term security. And the fear of what a country being allowed to seize sovereign territory would mean for their independence were Russia to be successful in Ukraine. So it's important to remember that in the context of Taiwan. It's not often talked about. So that's the main political picture as things stand, David. Thanks very much, Francis Sternley. There's one other story I think we should focus on. Can you talk us through it? Sure. This is a very concerning one and obviously addresses a matter we try and raise on the podcast as often as we can when there are developments. So a 17-year-old Ukrainian orphan abducted from Mariupol faces conscription into the Russian army, his lawyer has warned, as the Kremlin searches for fresh recruits. So this is Bogdan Amokhin, who will turn 18 on November the 19th and has already received a notice to report to the Russian military in December. His lawyer has said, and I quote, I no longer have any doubts about Russia's plans. When Bogdan turns 18 in three weeks, he will already be an adult and most likely will be sent to serve in the Russian army. So he was among 31 children abducted from Mariupol and illegally sent to Russia in May last year when he was placed into foster care despite his sister being his legal guardian. He was allegedly then forced to take Russian citizenship and was paraded around as part of Russian propaganda according to various human rights organisations advocating on his behalf. Now, the warning from Bogdan's lawyer prompted a response from Russia's Commissioner for Children's Rights. In an interview with Radio Liberty, she claimed that Bogdan was not at risk of being drafted because he's studying in college and is eligible to defer his enlistment. But once he turns 18, Ukrainian lawyers say he will no longer be able to renounce the Russian citizenship imposed on him and will be barred from leaving Russia unless he fulfills the requirement 
to serve in the military. As a consequence of this, there have been several unsuccessful attempts to bring him back to Ukraine. In July last year, he tried to return home on his own, according to his lawyer, and he has repeatedly expressed a desire to go home, but has not been able to do that. He's not been let out of the country. He's not been allowed to leave. And his lawyer said, at present, we do not have any confirmation regarding the return of the child to Ukraine, despite the fact that all the necessary documents have been submitted and there is confirmation regarding their receipt. We've tried contacting the Russian embassy here in the UK. They have not replied to our request for comment. He is one of over 19,000 children the Ukrainian government say have been taken from Ukraine against their will, with as little as 386 returned. We've spoken many times about the horrors we know that they have been subjected to, including being taught to hate their own country in re-education camps. But being forced to fight against your country is somehow even more disturbing, I think. And so inevitably we will be monitoring this very closely. Well, thank you very much, Francis and Joe. If there are no more um, updates from either of you, let's go to our final thoughts. Uh, Joe Barnes. Hi, folks. I just want to say I'm going off, I'll be off to Hungary next week and to speak about the uh, Ukraine's membership bid for the EU membership with sort of Hungarian politicians and decision makers there. So uh, keep an eye out for that. But then with my final thought, it was more of I wanted to um, give a hat tip to a story that appeared on the Sky News website this morning. It's quite a touching story about a young girl called Camilla Harashenko, a young chess player who moved from Kramatorsk to the UK with the help of the international chess community. And I know there are lots of chess players in Ukraine, um, many very talented chess players in Ukraine. It just seems to be a, a game that people in that part of the world really enjoy playing. So it's good to see that she is now off she has um, now swapped allegiances somewhat to go and play for... She will play her first games for England coming up soon. So she's a 21-year-old. She's studying computer science at Hull University and will and will play chess for England. And it's, it's written by uh, Michael Drummond, a foreign news reporter at Sky News, and was put on their website this afternoon. So I'd encourage people to go and read Camilla Harashenko's uh, story about how she moved to the UK with the help of the international chess playing community uh, from Kramatorsk at a time when, yeah, the, the city's sort of existence was in question. Uh, days after she left, I think it was about 30 or 40 people were killed, hundreds more injured when a Russian missile attack struck the very busy train station there as sort of women, children and families queued to get out and move away from eastern Ukraine to safety. Um, and I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Joe. Francis Stanley. Thanks, David. We had Aliona Livko on the podcast yesterday. And as part of that, we were discussing the implications, ramifications of Ukraine's decision not to have a presidential election in March. And we discussed the perceived advantages and disadvantages of that from the perspective of Kyiv. And a lot of listeners have been in touch reflecting on this as well. And I just wanted to read an extract from an email from Dermot 
So he says, greetings from Sydney, Australia. I listened with interest to Aliona and her analysis of the choice and chance of there being a presidential election in Ukraine next year or not, as the case may be. I agree with all her points and would like to add that Russia being masters interfering in elections all over the world would concentrate every disruptive strategy, hack, dirty trick and channels of disinformation they can muster to sabotage any election and generate division and uncertainty within Ukraine. Yet another reason to add to the long list as to why an election is surely an unnecessary burden on Ukraine right now. Well, thank you for reaching out, Dermot, and to everyone else who's written in about this. I think it's an important point to add into the conversation. And one, of course, that the West is going to need to be increasingly sensitive to in a big year for elections next year, despite what's happening in Ukraine. United States, of course, here too in Great Britain. We mustn't underestimate the role of disinformation. Disinformation, of course, being the deliberate manufacture and proliferation of knowingly false material. This is not about censoring opposing opinions legitimately held. Such a freedom was, after all, what so many people gave their lives for in democratic countries. And in that vein, I do just want to end today by saying that this weekend marks remembrance here in Britain, where we pause and remember those who gave their lives in the service of our country. It's also commemorated around the Commonwealth. Over five million men and women from those nations also served in the First and Second World Wars alone. If you haven't watched Dom's Defence in depth this week, we'll include a link to it in the description. It's a very poignant reflection on what it means to him as a former serviceman who lost friends in conflict. Such a day means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But given events around the world the most unstable for many decades, those who gave their lives for freedom will be on the forefront of many of our minds. On behalf of all of us at Ukraine The Latest, we will remember you. Thank you so much, Francis and Joe. Yesterday, I caught up with foreign correspondent Matthew Day to talk about Polish politics and society in the weeks following Poland's general election. Here's our conversation. Matt, we reported on the Polish general election from a few weeks ago. What listeners may not know is that there's still political wrangling to form a government. Can you tell us the latest here? What's been happening and who are the movers and shakers? Well, we have a a number of movers and shakers. And at the moment, number one, we can say Mateusz Morawiecki, who is the incumbent prime minister. And he has been selected by the president, Andrzej Duda, to have first crack of the whip at forming a new government. Now, people say that this is just like, uh, it's just going, they're going through the procedures because Mateusz Morawiecki, his party, Law and Justice, even though they have, they will have the most seats in the new Polish parliament, they won't have enough seats to form a majority. And so Duda says, well, I had to give them a chance because they're the most popular party. But everybody really knows that Morawiecki's chances of forming a government are incredibly slim. No other party has said they will work with law and justice. And people from law and justice, the governing party, are saying they're trying to prize away an MP here, an MP there from another party or another grouping or faction. They might do that, but they won't get enough to form a majority. So the ball really will be very soon in the court of Donald Tusk. Of course, you know, known to many people now in Europe and in the UK as well. And he's the leader of the opposition. 
he has said, look, we can get a coalition government together. They haven't done that yet. Apparently tomorrow on Friday, they will, they have announced that they will officially strike a coalition agreement. That coalition will have a majority in parliament. And once Morawiecki has failed, which most people presume he will do, then they will go to the president and say, look, it's our turn now. We command a majority and we should be asked to form the next government. And that will probably, that's how it will probably play out. Maybe not for certain, but almost probably Tusk will be the next Polish prime minister. And in your view, how has the issue of Ukraine and the Ukraine war featured in these discussions? Because it was quite, it was quite big in the in the campaign, as I understand it. So what, what's happening now? Well, U- Ukraine was it wasn't a particular policy issue during the election. It's actually one of the few times that the government and the opposition were sort of in broad agreement, and that was Ukraine. Both are they support Ukraine both wholeheartedly want Ukraine to defeat Russia, and both offer no sort of alternative other than that. There's no wavering, there's no going back. It's not like uh, Slovakia. And so Ukraine wasn't, as I said, in the election, it wasn't a big thing, like one party was, was saying one thing, another party was saying another thing when it came to Ukraine. It was in the background, of course, like security is now a, a big issue in Poland, the government made a play of it in their election campaign, saying, look, uh, there's a big threat to our, on our eastern border. We've boosted the army. We spent a fortune on guns and bombs. So security, Poland will be secure through our policies. Having said that, they didn't, they haven't really won the election. So maybe it didn't work as successfully as they, they would have liked. But there is... When it comes to the parties, there is a subtle difference, though, when it comes to Ukraine, and maybe not in how they directly orientate themselves towards Ukraine, but actually how they orientate themselves to Europe. Uh, of course, Law and Justice, the governing party, they have a very rather cantankerous relationship with the EU, while Donald Tusk, of course, being a, a Europhile, wants to improve relationships with the EU as soon as he can get into office. I think he said this is his number one priority. And if they can improve relationships with the EU, then it is possible that Poland might be able to exert greater influence in the EU when it comes to Ukraine policy. So they have the same uh, drive when it comes to Ukraine, supporting Ukraine, getting weapons to Ukraine, getting financial support for Ukraine, as the government, as the current government does. But at the same time, they will be heard more, perhaps by the voices in Brussels, by the powers in Berlin, in Paris, because the new Polish government would be far more EU-friendly and cosier to Brussels. So little things like that could change. For example, uh, there was a dispute between Ukraine and Poland over grain. That sort of set Poland at odds with the EU. Those little disputes probably won't appear so often or won't appear at all with a more EU-orientated Polish government. Matt, you, you spoke there briefly about Slovakia, and we covered, obviously, the Slovak elections, the, the election of Robert Fico in Slovakia and his his position, you know, a lot less supportive t- towards Ukraine. Um, how did that go down in Poland? What was the reaction? What, what is what is the attitude of, of the Polish government and Polish people towards Slovakia, Hungary? How, how do they, how do, what do they make of it? Uh, well, I think they're rather sad and disappointed, really. 
these are countries that are on the eastern flank of NATO, the EU. These are countries that have a certain amount of common history when it comes to being bossed around by the Russians or being invaded by the Russians or the Soviet Union, of course, as in the case of Czechoslovakia in 1968, Hungary in 1956. So Poles think, come on, you know, the, you know, these guys should really know how bad Russia can be and its imperialistic policies. And so the current Polish government, of course, which has had very strong bonds with the Hungarian government in particular, it gets very, I think it gets deep down, it gets very frustrated with Orban's increasingly Russia-orientated policy or maybe not orientated, but a placating attitude towards Moscow. And as most Poles don't understand it either. They think they regard Russia as a threat. They regard Russia as a neo-imperial power that basically wants to exert its influence in its old backyard. And Poles don't want that to happen. And they're a bit kind of disappointed that their Slavic neighbours in Slovakia uh, appear to be soft on it and the Hungarians appear to be soft on it. Matt, you spoke briefly about the sort of ongoing grain spat between Ukraine and Poland. Um, earlier this week, we saw truckers, Polish truckers, blocking three crossings into Ukraine to protest. And this is the quote I've got from Reuters, to protest against what they see as government inaction over a loss of business to foreign competitors during Russia's war on Ukraine. Could you take us inside this story? What's happening here? And does it at all play into this battle to form a government in Poland? Well, what you have, you have Polish lorry drivers, Polish road haulage firms complaining probably with a certain amount of justification that after once the war started, you had this sort of permit program that stopped Ukrainian haulage firms, lorry drivers operating in the EU. That was abolished to basically free up the flow of goods between the EU and Ukraine for understandable reasons. We needed to get supplies into Ukraine quickly. But over time, they said that basically Ukrainian road haulage firms have exploited this because they... Ukrainians, they have lower labour costs, lower costs than most things. So they can basically shift goods around, undercutting Polish uh, road haulage firms all over the place. And they are aggrieved. And so they've been putting these protests on the Polish-Ukrainian border. And it's caused a major logistical problem on the Polish border. I think some lorry drivers are having to wait three days now to cross the border. There was a queue of like 28 kilometres yesterday at one border crossing. 28 kilometres, was that, like 16, 17 miles or something? That is a long traffic jam. And these are issues which, I, they, they, they do have a political dimension in a way that people say, well, hang on a moment, we should be supporting Ukraine no matter what. But at the same time, there are economic implications for Poland as well. Poland has one of the biggest road haulage sectors in Europe, actually, if not the biggest, quite possibly. It's got a vast road haulage sector. So if that sector is hurting, then that's a lot of, that's a lot of firms, a lot of people who could lose money, could lose their jobs. And it, so there is a balancing act that has to be done between supporting Ukraine but at the same time taking into account some of the difficulties that this support throws up. And what needs to be done, of course, is that the Polish government and the Ukrainian government need to sit down and maybe try to come to some form of compromise. Hopefully that can be done.
Matt, we've spoken about the attitude of the government towards Ukraine. And as you, you talked about how the election campaign really saw both sides in agreement about continuing support for, for Ukraine in its war. What's your view? What's your take on sort of ordinary polls in the street? Has that attitude changed much over the past 19 months? Are there new sort of social economic problems potentially? What do you make of the ordinary man in the streets in, in, in Warsaw's view on all this? The attitude... Support, in a way, the the open manifestation for support has waned. People have just got on with their lives, like the vast majority. When the war started, you had this huge influx of Ukrainians into Poland, and they were everywhere. You could see them in railway stations, on the pavement, outside Bureau de Chans. And there was this huge mobilization of Polish society to help Ukraine. Okay, a year and a half later, things have changed considerably. A lot of Ukrainians have gone back to Ukraine. A lot of the Ukrainians who came to Poland now are sort of settled. They've got jobs. And they've just sort of blended into Polish society. So you, you don't see them so clearly now. If you go out into the streets, in the, if you listen to the conversations, you still hear Ukrainian being spoken very often, or you hear Polish with a Ukrainian accent being spoken quite often as well. So the Ukrainians have just sort of been absorbed into the greater Polish society. They can do that because you know, Polish-Ukrainians are very similar. People look very similar. They're, you know, they're, they're, both, you know, they're, they're all Slavs together in a way. And because of that, maybe there has been the sort of gradual decline in support for the Ukraine, maybe war, Ukrainian war effort. But at the same time, is it is very gradual. I, I think I saw an opinion poll saying that like 76% of polls still believe that Poland should support Ukraine to the utmost. So it's not as if it's manifesting itself as a kind of huge, you know, huge dilemma for the Polish government saying, oh, no, the, Pol- the Polish society is going one way and we're going the other way. Poles are still on board when it comes to supporting Ukraine. Maybe not as much as they were, but basically the majority still want to help Ukraine basically help Ukraine to the end and the end is a victory. And just, I mean, maybe not, but I'm wondering, you mentioned obviously Poland took in so many Ukrainian refugees and and, and people, so many people came across the border. Do we have any sense of what their lives are like? What's the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian in Poland view on all this? Well, well, it's hard hard to judge, of course, because they're, they're a very disparate group of people. But the Ukrainians I know, they're all settled in Poland now. They've got jobs, they're registered, they can send their children to Polish schools. They can use the Polish health service. They can claim benefits. And they have just sort of settled in and been absorbed. And you get this impression that it's all been done rather seamlessly. There's no sort of jarring. Occasionally, you do hear complaints from the Polish side about how a huge number of, of Ukrainian children arriving in Poland has put further pressure on the Polish education system, which even before the wars, creaking a wee bit too much. But uh, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's like a, an interesting example of how, how to absorb a foreign population very quickly. It's been done in Poland and there's virtually no fee, there's no sort of kickback on the Polish side. And I think that most Ukrainians are quite happy just to get on with their lives in Poland. 
Well, just to finish off, let's go back to the politics. You sketched out for us the next moves, but could you um, maybe potentially give us a bit of a timeline? When might foreign observers, when, when might we see a functioning Polish government? Well, we have the first sitting of the new Polish parliament next week. And then you might, within a fortnight, you might get a new government from there. It depends on how things move. Like if Morawiecki kind of throws in his towel and says, sorry, you know, I can't form a government, the opposition will be primed and ready and they should move very quickly. So maybe I would say within a month you should have a new Polish government. And if you don't mind, I just thought of one more point which might be interesting because talking about how this government, the new Polish government might differ from the pre, from the current Polish government, is an issue of history. And issue of history goes back to 1944 and 1945. In those years, you had a huge massacre of Polish citizens in what is now Western Ukraine, but in those days was Eastern Poland, well, under Soviet Nazi occupation. And this massacre has long cast a shadow over Polish-Ukrainian relations. And you had a Polish foreign ministry saying the other day that unless there are the Ukrainian government consents to the exhumation of the victims of this massacre, there will be no EU membership for Ukraine. That's, you know, they said they, they put a line in the sand there. No EU membership for Ukraine unless Polish scientists, pathologists can get into Ukraine and dig these people up. And that's, a, that's an issue which is very close to the Polish, this government's heart. I would imagine the next government, they won't be so passionate about the subject and therefore they won't be saying, you know, sorry, we're going to boycott, we're going to veto Ukraine's membership of the EU unless this issue is resolved. They'll probably just say, okay, look, come on, Ukraine, come and join the EU. So that's one point where there might be a difference in the future when it comes to policies, Polish governments, and their relationship with their neighbour to the east. Matt Day, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, 
We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.